Open Science Talk, the podcast about open science. My name is uh, Pierre Pipinaspos, and I'm joined today by Pierre Mounier from France. So would you mind introducing yourself, Pierre? Who are you? Thank you, Pierre. Uh, so my name is Pierre Mounier. I'm wo- I work at the École des Études en Sciences Sociales, uh, which is a French research performing organization specialized on social sciences. And I'm involved at management level in several infrastructures dedicated to open scholarly communication in humanities and social sciences. So I'm involved in uh, Open Edition, which is the French national infrastructure for this topic, but also in OPRAS. We are going to talk a little bit about it, uh, I think, and also in uh, the uh, directory of open access books. Yes. So you've been in this open science movement landscape for quite some years now. And uh, what is this Open Edition? If you start off with that, how did that come about? And and uh, what are your uh, your role there in in this open science landscape mm. uh, broadly? So I'm not the founder of Open Edition. Uh, the former name of Open Edition was Revue.org. So you could translate it by journals.org if you like. And in, it was founded by Marin Dacos in 1999. So it's a very old organization. Uh, and it's really a community-driven initiative because uh, at the start, uh, Marin, Uh, was uh, a PhD student uh, working at a, uh, in an institution, the University of Avignon, and he was uh, uh, asked by some uh, journals in history to set up something to be disseminated online, and so to set up a website for those journals to be disseminated online. And that's where he started to uh, build what would become a shared infrastructure, not only for those two or three history journals, but for many more journals by developing uh, this infrastructure, which is named now Open Edition. So it comes from the community itself, for, from the need of the researchers, the editors of the journals, uh, and with the help of many other stakeholders, it grew organically from the community to become a national infrastructure, but it took uh, It took 20 years to 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 go to the to to, to arrive to this uh, to this point, and then to onboard other institutions. So the Ecole des Études en Sciences Sociales, of course, but the Ex Marseille University, the CNRS, progressively joined the band to set up and to to grow this infrastructure that would be useful for the whole national community in the humanities and social sciences, and to to help the journals first transition towards the open access model. And then we extended the activity towards the books. Now we have a platform dedicated to academic blogs, to uh, uh, scientific events as well. So that's the history, let, let's say, of Revue.org, who transformed into open edition and grew uh, from the community itself. And so I'm not the founder. Marin is the founder of it. But uh, very quickly from, uh, let's say, the two first years, I joined, uh, joined the band. Um, let's say on as a volunteer first, and then uh, I was more and more involved into the the development of this activity. That's very interesting to hear that the historians and other hum- humanities scholars were actually asking for open access um, or, and or electronic publishing at least. And they are sort of the prejudice against the humanities is that they are a little bit in the backwater here and they prefer print and so on and hard copies uh, if they can. And uh, did, you, did you meet that kind of uh, 
of attitudes or was this more of a smooth process of bringing on board the, the various editors? No, it was not smooth at, at all. Uh, so because, of course, uh, let's say the, the, the scholar community is not uh, homogeneous regarding open access. There are a lot of uh, uh, different opinions, different positions. So let's say that those initial uh, journals were forerunners. They were pioneers in the movement. The interesting point was that their demand, if I remember well, was not to be open access as, you know, this label open access. What they wanted is to be online first and to be more visible. And I, I say that because open access is not interesting for just the sake of being open access. Why do we need to be open access? Why is it interesting? And for the humanities, and that's what I'm, I, I strongly believe, for the humanities and social sciences particularly, Open access is not a threat, but an opportunity to be more used, more visible, more in the, in the center of the landscape, rather than in a small corner where nobody uh, is looking to, you know. So, uh, and that's what, that was uh, the, the initial uh, will of those, small, of, of those initial journals, to be just more visible. And then it was easy to, to tell them that open access is a way to be more visible for them. And then that's where you have more journals joining, more editors, more scholars joining and being convinced of that. But others, of course, were all, uh, always reluctant and, and uh, saying that, for example, they didn't want to be more visible on this garbage, which is Internet. And, and just they, they just wanted to have this pr their print edition in the good bookshops, you know, and in, in the good libraries where you have a selection of on quality and so on, and internet was really for the teenagers and it was not for the scientists and so on. So during the 10 first years of the development of the activities, we had this kind of, uh, of debate within the scientific community. That was uh, hard sometimes, but always interesting. How then about the costs of covering for this? I guess you needed some sort of governmental or at least public funding somehow to, to, to build this service and to expand it to become like a national service for the humanities and social sciences research outputs. Yeah. So, uh, you know, um, recently we, uh, with uh, 10 organizations, we did a, a pan-European survey about diamond publishing models. So the name of it is the Open Access, Open Ex, uh, the Open Access Diamond Journal Study. And we asked uh, journal editors, publishers, and uh, other stakeholders about the business model of their diamond journal. And we found in this study that the business model, or the economic model, I prefer to say that, of uh, diamond publishing relies on different sources. So yes, there is public money, like public investment coming from the government, there is in-kind contribution coming from the institutions who, for example, second personnel or uh, 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 put some of their personnel from the libraries, for example, at the disposal of the journals or the infrastructures or the university press, for example. But there is also a lot of volunteering. So scholars themselves involved into editorial practice, into the development of uh, open access publishing and so on. And that's what... That's the, exactly the story of uh, Open Edition, which started with volunteering of a PhD student who was not supposed to do that, but he did that on his free time. 
And then progressively, you had other funding and support resources that were uh, uh, brought uh, and, and offered by supporting institutions. And then we had grants, for example, but the problem or like governmental grants, but the problem of governmental grants is that they are uh, limited in time, of course. So you have money to develop something and after at the end of the project, it's over. So we had to chase after more structural funding and progressively, the conjunction of all these kind of support funding through in-kind contributions coming from uh, institutions and, uh, and funding, cash funding coming from the government through projects funding or through structural funding makes an economic model for the infrastructure and for the diamond publishing model. So one key point in this history was when we were qualified and recognized as a, res a national research infrastructure because... When was that? So it was, um, I don't remember exactly, but it was more than 10 years ago, uh, something like that. Right. So you know that uh, in the European countries, the European countries, usually they have a, a national roadmap to fund the development of research infrastructures. And what they mean usually traditionally by research infrastructures is uh, telescopes, uh, colliders, uh, naval fleet to, uh, to study the oceans and so on. But quite never scholarly communication infrastructures because they, they were at that time, they were not recognized as research infrastructure, but as something else, something different. And we fought a lot internally of France to be recognized as a research infrastructure and to be on the national roadmap. Because when you are on the national roadmap, then you have access to more structural funding because you are one of those research infrastructures who are so essential for research uh, to, to develop and to, to grow. So that was uh, also a, a very uh, key point or a tipping point in our, uh, in our sustainability, I would say. One question looking at France from the outside is mm. that uh, you also have a cultural politics um, of spreading the French language or maintaining French as an important language internationally. I'll return to that. Uh, in Norway, we have no vision of Norwegian being important internationally outside of Norway, but still we want to keep it as an academic language with, uh, you can, uh, all the, the scientific terms should be uh, possible to express in Norwegian, for instance. Yes. That's good for teaching, good for disseminating research findings to the, the wider public. Um, here in Norway, it's usually the humanities and social sciences that that live up to that mm. ideal mm. Um, because they still have their peer-reviewed journals, even in Norwegian only. Uh, some some important journals are, are Norwegian. Yep. Uh, and the government is then less reluctant to support those because they, they see the importance. They, they have no, let's say, commercial possibilities because they can't go international in mm. Norwegian. Is, is this kind of similar in France? This is the language politics, cultural politics of France. Uh, with the, I, I would assume that many of the publications in Open Edition are in French. And was that important on the political level or not? I would say not as much as in your country, uh, because <clears throat> Uh, I think that researchers, maybe uh, I will be uh, killed by some researchers if I say that, but I think that French researchers, 
in humanities and social sciences and particularly in the humanities, they don't have so much pressure to publish in English. So there were there are some periods of time where there is uh, there were attempts to to really pressurize them to publish only in English, but the pushback was immediately very very hard from the researchers. So there was one, two, three attempts, but no more. And uh, publishing in English for a researcher in, in French, sorry, uh, in a, for a researcher in humanities uh, is it's it's not too much a problem. They don't have too much pressure to, to really switch to English. Maybe in some disciplines of social sciences, of course, but really not so much in the humanities. So, of course, uh, the promotion of French language and the... Uh, I don't s know how to say that in English because it's a very French word, the rayonnement of the French language, so you, the dissemination or the diffusion of the French language is, there, is, is an important factor. Uh, and, and it's an important factor also for, for the support that is, is being uh, given by the government to open edition, for example. But this is not a completely a, a key factor because, once again, we don't have the same pressure to... Uh, we, did, we didn't have the same pressure as the Scandinavian countries to publish in English. Um, uh, as, uh, yeah, we don't have the, the same pressure, so... Yeah. Publishing is one thing, um, but there's also a national archive, I noticed, uh, a, a repository, I mean, mm. in, in, in France, H-A-L. What does that stand for? And, and can you tell me a little bit about how that works? Yeah. So H-A-L started um, uh, a long time ago as well. Uh, first, it was uh, created by uh, the community of uh, physicists in France because they wanted to have a mirror of archive. That was the, the real origin of it. Uh, so they wanted to have a French mirror of archive uh, to be able to deposit uh, their, uh, their own article in the, in the mirror. Yeah. I, and that seems strange, but that's, uh, that's, that's the, the real origin of those who created HAL. And after that, uh, they, they, they got support from CNRS, uh, to grow this uh, this archive, this repository. Sorry for stopping you there, because our our listeners who don't know CNRS. What ah, is that? sorry. CNRS is a Centre National de la Recherche Scientifique. This is one of the main uh, research performing organizations. It's multidisciplinary in France, so this is uh, the largest uh, research organization in France. And they they sort of help pool funding for things and they, they have resources to put into initiatives. Exactly. Yeah. So they have a, um, they have a scientific uh, information department and they have funding to develop scientific information tools and platforms for, for their own uh, community of researchers, but for, for the whole country as well, because as it is the most, uh, the largest uh, research organization in France, it has a structuring role at the level of the country. So they, they, they had this initiative coming from the physicists who wanted to have their French mirror of uh, archive. And then uh, there were some funding uh, to, develop, uh, to develop this repository, not only for the physicists, but for progressively all uh, disciplines. And that's where after some time, other institutions and the government went in to provide more support and to provide collective funding, basically, 
to support this uh, thing, this repository that became a national uh, repository and indeed a national infrastructure as well. So it's no longer for physics. Not alone. only, no. And uh, the, the, the interesting thing is that uh, the researchers in humanities and social sciences uh, jumped in quite quickly uh, after the physicists. So there was quite quickly a sub-part of HAL, which was named HAL-SHS, for HAL, for the social sciences and humanities, Uh, where we uh, started to have uh, researchers uh, self-depositing their uh, preprints or their uh, um, uh, their chapters of, of books uh, in the repository. How then about research data? Uh, as far as I can tell now, um, it's it's very much infrastructure-based thinking. I mean, if you want to promote open science in France, you, you build infrastructures, it seems, from what you've said so far. Uh, research data sets, how, how are they managed? So uh, it's true that uh, we could say that um, the open science, the French open science policy is pretty much infrastructure driven. So that's, you know, we think immediately in terms of infrastructure. Okay, we have a policy, what is the infrastructure? that exists or not exist that we want to develop. And for the, the research data sets, it's, uh, it's quite the same. So uh, for a long time, uh, there was, um, let's say, um, uh, regional or, or institutional uh, development of uh, 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 research uh, data repositories uh, from different universities. So some are using Dataverse, for example, others are developing their own repository with different softwares and so on. Uh, and very recently, um, there was uh, the promotion of, uh, let's say, a national federate. So that's interesting because it's it's not a centralized infrastructure this time. It's a it's a federated infrastructure. So there was the the setup and the promotion of a federated national infrastructure for uh, uh, research data repositories. So the the idea. I'm not a specialist of this domain, but. The idea is that you have a federation between the existing uh, institutional repositories and there is a national one which plays the role of uh, a fallback system or a catch-all uh, system for those researchers or communities who don't have any um, uh, repository where they can share their, their data at institutional level and then they can use the national one and it's all federated together. The, the, the other point is that we have also disciplinary-based research infrastructures. So for the humanities, for example, we have Humanum. So Humanum is the national research infrastructure dedicated to digital humanities, so humanities with digital tools and methods. And uh, they, they set up, uh, they, they developed and set up a repository named uh, Nakala where the researchers in humanities, they can deposit as well their data sets, their, their sources, and they, ca they can expose them with uh, um, standard uh, metadata to uh, give them more visibility. And of course, it ensures preservation of the data set and so on. We mentioned politics earlier. Uh, I have a tricky question for you towards the end. It's, um, we all know that... Um, Within the universities and the public institutions, we, we have our agenda, we have our needs and, and, and visions for how things should uh, mm. move forward. Mm. But you also have other actors that can claim they have the same 
vision, but perhaps they don't. Uh, perhaps they have um, they have something else that has to dri drive them because they are commercial, so they actually need to to gain some money. And sometimes this uh, this can be a nice alignment between those two interests uh, for sure. But some other times there are conflicts. I've I've noticed, for instance, that in France, these so-called transformative deals have have not been very well received. And I've also heard people from governmental levels saying that mm. this is not the way forward. Um, but there are lobbyists, and there are different interests. Uh, how does this work? Are, are you are you confident that France as a whole is moving in the open science direction, or, or is there friction, and and can there be uh, sudden changes? So. The situation on this uh, topic is uh, really different between uh, uh, different disciplines. So just uh, to sum it up, there are big differences between STM disciplines, so science, technique, and technology and medicine uh, disciplines and uh, SSH uh, disciplines. Because for the STM disciplines, uh, in terms of lobbying, yes, there is lobbying at highest level uh, from, um, let's say, big commercial publishers to obtain certain, a certain number of things, uh, to drive the policy in certain directions. That's the normal game, I would say. Uh, but what is true is that in France, recently, in fact, it was uh, two or three years ago, we set up what we call the COSO. And the COSO is the Comité pour la Science Ouverte. It's a national committee. Uh, coordinated by the French uh, Ministry of Research that gathers all the stakeholders involved in a way or another in open science. So you have all the institutions represented. You have the libraries, you have, the, you have uh, um, uh, Couperin, who is the, the national consortium of libraries. Uh, you have the research institutions, you have the universities, you have the university press, you have everyone in this COSO who works through different working groups, etc. That's very important because it creates a kind of community. And when you are a community, then it's much more difficult for lobbyists to have separate discussions and to make pressure on certain stakeholders in private conversations, you know. Because when you create a community, you have a public forum where information is shared, and then it prepares the ground for collective discussion and collective action for the common good. So I, I'm, I'm really uh, interested by this, uh, this uh, COSO development, the development of this National Committee for Open Science as a community at national level, because I, I think it gives a lot of strength to the uh, scholarly community uh, to, to make collective decisions in accordance with the ministry itself uh, and to, uh, to push back a little bit uh, the, let's say, uh, the mm, specific interest that would uh, want to take advantage of um, what's going on. So that's for the STM. For the SSH, the situation is a little bit different because uh, we have uh, a number of publishers, so some of them are public university presses, but we have a number of private for-profit commercial publishers in France 
we are publishing uh, um, research outputs and so books and journals uh, in French mostly, and we are useful in the landscape. So here, my interpretation, my position, that's really a personal opinion about that, is that their aim, their objective is not to make profit. It's not to maximize their profit, but they are anxious about the development of open science policies because they are anxious that it will destroy their business model or their economic model, right? So it's not the same. They don't want to maximize their profit. They just want to preserve their economic model and, and, uh, and continue their operation and continue to work. So what is difficult, but what is interesting is that we have to find solutions for them as well so that the development of open access and open science policies in fact, once again, can be an opportunity for them and not a threat to their economic model. And that's difficult because when you have people who are under pressure, under what they consider as a threat, it's very difficult to have, a, a, let's say, a free conversation with them and to explore with them. So that's where sometimes in the French context, we have, a, let's say, um, uh, hard positions which are taken by some actors because they feel they feel threatened, but they shouldn't. That's what we need to work on. And that's a very specific to the SSH situation because those publishers, commercial publishers, they are very small, in fact. They have small team, and they are small organizations, small companies, so they are fragile in a sense. Yeah. This has been uh, hugely interesting, uh, Pierre. Is there anything else about French open science that you would like to add towards the end of this episode? Maybe my final word would be to, to say that uh, uh, sometimes um, uh, we, the French, we don't share enough and we don't engage enough in conversations with our colleagues and our other communities in other countries, such as in Norway, for example. So this is a tendency in France not to, to reach out enough and to, to consider ourselves in a more European or inter international context, trying to learn from the others, but also to share what we are doing and, and to share information about what we are doing. So I think this is important that we work on, on this. And that's why I, I really thank you for, for, for this podcast, because you give me the opportunity uh, to, to share information about what's going on in my country as I've, I'm, I'm learning uh, what's going on in your country when I participated in, a, in the Munich conference, for example, and discussing with you. So we should continue. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for coming to the podcast, Pierre. Open Science Talk is produced by the University Library at UIT, the Arctic University of Norway. Thanks for listening. <laughs>